Welcome to the MarTech Alliance Marketing and Technology Book Club. I'm the founder and your host, Carlos Doughty. We are joined by Scott Cooper, managing partner at venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, which is behind investments in the likes of Lyft, Slack, Airbnb, and Instagram, to name a few. Scott was, in fact, employee number one, and today he's joining us to chat about his fantastic book, Secrets of Sand Hill Road. Scott, welcome. Thanks for having me, Carlos. It's an absolute pleasure. Let's jump in. Tell us a little bit about your time before Andreessen Horowitz. How did you end up there? Yeah, so I've been uh, in and around technology for about 25 years. I actually am a reformed lawyer, believe it or not, and then uh, took a bunch of companies public in the last bubble that we had in the kind of 97 to 2000 time period. Uh, I worked for a firm uh, called Credit Suisse First Boston at the time. And then I just kind of by happenstance got introduced to Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz when they started a company called LoudCloud in 1999. And um, uh, it was a uh, fantastic opportunity to do what we were trying to build what is essentially now Amazon Web Services. And uh, as you'll see with a lot of things adventure, it was a great idea that was probably a few years ahead of its time, unfortunately. But uh, that's how I got involved with them. We ran that business for about nine years and ultimately sold to HP. And then after uh, you know doing some additional work at HP for a couple of years, we uh, spun out and decided to kind of uh, do this venture capital gig. And, and tell me a little bit, what was the moment like when you went to your other half? Do you know what? Actually, um, I'm going to start. I'm going to leave my secure, fantastic job and go for a startup. I believe in this <laughs> in this new space. Yeah, it was uh, an interesting time. So, you know, if uh, for if your listeners were around in the Valley at that point in time, I mean, it was a crazy, crazy time, right? So this was the height of 1999. And every company was getting funded, every IPO was going out and, you know, trading up 10, 15, 20 times in the market. Uh, so it was an incredibly heady time. And we all thought, quite frankly, that it would just last forever. And so I, uh, I kind of promptly came home one day after I met Mark and Ben and told my wife, who was actually then about, you know, six months pregnant with our first daughter. And uh, we had just moved into a new house. And I said, hey, you know, I'm quitting this great job to go start something that is going to, you know, we're going to cut our income by 50% at least. And we're going to, we have no idea if this will actually work, but it sounds like a great idea. And, you know, rightly so, she was fairly skeptical of that. But, uh, you know, it was kind of a little bit of just, it was a sign of the times. It was kind of what people were doing. And you felt like, quite frankly, you were missing out by not being part of the startup community. And uh, that was really what, um, uh, what got me really excited about it. And I think, it's, um, I think your background is particularly interesting because not everybody who sits um, VC side has that background. So it's a unique perspective and it really comes through in your book. You know, there's, a, there's clearly a recognition, understanding in terms of that relationship between the startup and the VC that's quite unique. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you picked that up in the book because I think, I think that is true. A lot of what I hope that we bring to this business is an understanding of the entrepreneurial process and, you know, just quite frankly, how difficult it is to build these companies. And I think, I, I hope at least that makes us better, you know, kind of not just investors, but also more empathetic to just, you know, kind of how we interact with entrepreneurs and, you know, a foundational core value of our business is respect for the entrepreneur and respect for the entrepreneurial process. And I think it's very hard to have you know, kind of a real understanding of that requirement, unless you've actually been on that side of the business where you understand just day to day how challenging it is to kind of go from startup to hopefully, you know, long standing enduring business. Yeah, I think it, I think it's completely clear. I mean, I mean, the very nature that you decided to write the book is is clearly trying to democratize the space and give the opportunity to the other side. You know, I found it fascinating. And I do, I do think literally anybody in a startup who's looking at VC investment has to read it. It's, it was really, really insightful. 
that's great. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that was definitely the goal was I, I felt like there's just too much kind of there's too much asymmetric information. There's too much just kind of, uh, you know, vocabulary that people don't know in common. And I think, unfortunately, it creates, you know, some sense of distrust and, uh, you know, kind of just heightened tension unnecessarily between the venture capitalist and the entrepreneur relationship. And so I, I agree with you, which is my hope is that whether you're starting a business or you're in a venture back business, or quite frankly, you just want to understand kind of the role of technology and venture in the broader kind of economic growth that we all kind of enjoy globally. It's uh, I hope it, it really sheds some light on that. So one, uh, let's jump into a couple of bits more that came out in the book. So one thing that um, you talked about was VCs only care about at-bats per home run. Can you walk us through this thinking? Yeah. So uh, let me uh, let me try and kind of uh, break the analogy down. So, uh, you know, hopefully the baseball analogy translates uh, globally. But the basic way to think about this business is, unfortunately, we are wrong more often than we're right. So probably about half of what we do we will lose all of our money. Uh, we, we use this very polite term that we call impaired capital, which is a very euphemistic way of saying kind of you screwed up and, and <laughs> the company went to zero, basically. So if you think about that, right, I, I've got kids in school, you know, if your kids came home and they scored 50% on their tests, you'd be pretty disappointed as a parent. Uh, you know, if you're in the VC business, you're just getting started, basically, if you're scoring 50%. Um, and then essentially what happens is about 20 to 30% of the deals, you make a little bit of money, you might get your money back, you might make one or two or three times your money. But, uh, you know, if you kind of look at that, you're talking about 70 to 80% of your investments really aren't yielding much at all at the end of the day. And the only way you can be successful in this business is for that remaining 10 or 20%, you really have to, in the baseball analogy, you have to hit a home run, you have to really basically uh, return 10 times, 25 times, 50 times your money to effectively subsidize all the kind of lost money that you've had on the companies that haven't worked out. And so, you know, what that translates to then when you think about kind of, do I want to take VC money? Is it right for me? You know, the question is, look, are you are you aspiring to be one of those companies in that top 10 or 20%? And that's not a normative statement because there's lots of plenty of great businesses that may not just ever get that big. But, uh, but it does really inform the thinking from the VC side, which is, you know, I can't really invest in a company that at least at the start of the investment, I don't believe have, has a chance to be in that upper right quadrant. And so that I think kind of, you know, self-selects out a lot of otherwise very, very good businesses from traditional VC funding. So let's talk about the companies that fall into that top right quadrant. So you talked a lot about entrepreneurs pitching and you walked through your sort of five areas to focus on around sort of market size, team, product, go-to-market and planning. Can you, can you walk us through sort of step-by-step in terms of where people need to nail this, where they get it exactly right, and you can suddenly go, actually, I think this really falls into the the at-bat per home run category. Let's start with market, right? So if you go back to kind of what we just talked about, which is what the VC needs to believe is, okay, if everything goes well, how big can this company be? Can it become a Facebook? Can it become a Twitter, right? Can it be effectively a publicly traded company that hopefully has, you know, very meaningful business prospects? And probably what that means is you have to believe it can be at least a multi-billion dollar market capitalization company in the public stock markets. Um, and so that's kind of the question number one is, okay, can, can the market support a business of that size? And as I said earlier, you know, there's nothing bad about smaller businesses. In fact, they can be incredibly lucrative to the owners of those businesses. But kind of thing number one for a VC is, okay, do I believe if everything goes right, it can be in that kind of market size opportunity? Then, you know, you go to those really, the other two things you talked about, which is kind of team and then product. And I I put team before product because particularly at the early stage, we recognize that kind of the product in many cases doesn't exist. 
And we certainly recognize that the product thinking is going to evolve significantly once that product gets into the market and we start to get real customer feedback. So a major portion of what we're trying to figure out is, okay, if we assume this is a big market opportunity, why do we want to back this team? What is it that uniquely situates this team to win in what will likely be a very competitive market? And the people, I think, who articulate that well are people who help us understand what is it about their background that uniquely situates them to this industry? You know, how did they earn that information? So, you know, maybe this was your PhD thesis for 10 years, or maybe you just organically had this problem in your life and solved it and kind of felt almost compelled to build a business opportunity around it. Uh, so it's those types of characteristics. And then importantly, we talk about this characteristic of storytelling, which is really you know, not not storytelling in a bad way, in other words, not making up stories, but the ability to kind of, you know, really inspire and convey a message to people, and quite frankly, to cause them to do somewhat irrational things. So, you know, we we started this uh, podcast, you know, you asked me about when I quit my job at, the, uh, at Credit Suisse and joined LoudCloud, you know, in many ways, that was an irrational decision to make if you just kind of looked at your, you know, kind of current financial situation. But it's that kind of storytelling ability that somebody like a Mark Andreessen or a Ben Horowitz had that can cause people to do things that are somewhat unnatural that is just incredibly valuable just given the difficulty of starting the company. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, then, and then we go to product, right? So I'll, I'll, I don't want to belabor it, but, you know, product is important. But as I said, we know that product is going to change over time. So a lot of what we're looking for there is help us understand what we call the idea maze, which is how did you kind of determine that this was the right product? How do you incorporate market feedback into that? And ultimately, how will you evolve as you certainly get more market feedback as the, uh, you know, the product gets into the market? On the similar sort of vein, one thing you talked about in there was looking for egomaniacal leadership style in founders. Can you, can you sort of expand on that and why it can be a good thing? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, when we first raised our first fund, uh, we literally said egomaniacal was one of the characteristics um, of founders. And I will tell you, if you if anybody in your audience has raised money from limited partners, you probably know they're a fairly staid group. So I think uh, we probably ruffled a few feathers when we put that in our <laughs> in our pitch deck. Um, but what we really meant was obviously, you know, kind of not the uh, you know kind of negative association of that. But what we meant was kind of this this concept of. We know that starting these companies is so hard. We know the likelihood of success is so hard. And so you have to have a quality that, you know, kind of you almost believe when no one else believes, right? You have to be, be able to willfully suspend disbelief and, uh, you know, kind of be so confident in your ideas that you're willing to walk through walls and kind of ignore a lot of the negative sentiment and negative feedback that you might get from people. And so that's kind of the positive version of egomaniacal. Um, now, obviously, you know, as, as we've seen, there are some personalities where, you know, that can be, you know, uh, you know, deleterious as well. And so we're, we want to avoid those, but we really want people, we use this term in the book kind of, we want people who have, you know, strong beliefs, uh, but weakly held. And what we mean by that is somebody who's got real depth of conviction but who also is open-minded enough to really, you know, listen to and respond to feedback they get from the market. And, uh, you know, again, egomaniacal probably was not the best choice of words for that. But uh, in some respects, uh, you know, those, those characteristics are part of what, uh, you know, often do make successful entrepreneurs. And in terms of the businesses that they build, um, another analogy that sort of popped out, which really, really resonated uh, for me, and was around, are you building vitamins or aspirins? Yeah type companies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, the idea of kind of vitamins versus aspirins, right? So the, the concept here is it's very hard for new technology to get adopted. There's a famous quote, I think I have it in the book from a, a, a physicist, uh, Max Planck, 
and uh, I'll probably get the exact wording wrong, but but he said something like uh, technology advances one funeral at a time, and it's it's a bit of a morbid statement, but the basic idea is you know, that it takes generations often for consumer behavior to change in a way that new technologies can be adopted. And so therefore, the the vitamin versus aspirin concept is, if you're going to kind of try to change consumer behavior and get people to do things differently than what they've done before, it really has to be an aspirin, meaning it has to be kind of, you know, a must-have solution that, you know, when you have a headache, the, you know, you're not going to stop until you go find that aspirin in your your cupboard and, um, uh, you know, kind of hopefully alleviate your pain. Whereas, you know, a vitamin is kind of a little bit of a nice to have, right? So, you know, kind of it's, it's nice to have vitamins in the morning, but probably if you left your house and forgot to take them, you're probably not going to go back and, you know, kind of turn around and go back home and take them again. You'll, you'll just, you'll do it the next time is convenient for you. So that's really the underlying thread there is to move consumer behavior and quite frankly, to move enterprise behavior, you really have to have solutions that are just kind of 10x better than what's out there in the market and really have aspirin-like qualities versus kind of, you know, the more, uh, you know, kind of softer vitamin-like quality. And when it comes to essentially looking at the valuation analysis, you um, use the expression, what do I need to believe? What is it about those aspirin companies that they pull through that you you believe? Yeah, it's, um, so, uh you what the, the what what do I have to believe is really kind of goes back to this kind of market size and financial question, which is okay, let's just assume everything goes right, right? So let's assume this all goes right. Like how how big can this be and what does it mean, right? So if in order for I'll use an example, Lyft is one of our companies. So in order for Lyft to be successful, how much money, how many rides do they have to be able to generate? How many kind of uh, how much dollars ultimately does that mean? And does that kind of pass the red face test, quite frankly, right? Does that actually is that credible? So could you believe that? you know, in a market like San Francisco, when the taxi market is only $100 million in total revenue a year, that, you know, Lyft and Uber combined could do a billion and a half dollars a year in that market, which I think is quite frankly, kind of what they're doing today. So can that, you know, aspirin-like, you know, concept of the technology actually increase the market size uh, in a way that, uh, that you know, kind of other, other lesser technology or lesser products just couldn't do? And a lot of, um, a lot of the thinking obviously sits around very much software is eating the world. Yeah. For how long is that going to be the case, though? <laughs> so uh, my partner, Mark Andreessen, wrote this editorial, I believe, in 2010. Uh, and it was fairly prescient at the time, even though today it may be fairly commonplace. You know, the basic idea was, you know, we view software as this very broad uh, enabling technology that will kind of permeate lots of different industries over time. Um you know, look, where we sit here almost 10 years later, I don't see any signs that I don't see any signs that that should change or will change. In fact, I think we're still at the relative early days. If you look at kind of major industries that have been transformed by software, it's still pretty small. It's probably, you know, maybe the music industry with things like, you know, Spotify and, you know, kind of iTunes, to a certain extent, the entertainment industry with things like Netflix and others. Um, But, you know, in the enterprise, we're still relatively early on in terms of automation, the enterprise. And there's huge swaths of the economy, whether you look at financial services or education or government or uh, life sciences that are, quite frankly, still, you know, largely underpenetrated from a technology perspective. So, you know, I I think, you know, from our perspective, we don't feel any need to update our thesis. Uh, We feel like there's plenty of running room there. And, um, you know, we're we're big believers that that will continue, certainly for the foreseeable future. And to narrow in a little bit on the specific space in which we sit in, a lot of our listeners do, around marketing technology. Is there anything specifically you're seeing in the M&A space? Obviously, we've had the likes of uh, Salesforce buying up most recently Tableau. 
Yeah. Is there anything else you're seeing in the space and sort of trends and predictions going forwards? Yeah, we also had, um, you know, it's probably uh, not, it's maybe it's on point a little bit to what you're doing, you know, Looker, which is more of a reporting tool, as you may have seen, got required yeah. not too recently. Um, yeah, you know, there's definitely some M&A activity. There's also, quite frankly, still a huge amount of startup activity. Uh, we we looked in the last, quite frankly, just in the last couple of weeks, we've looked at a number of companies that are kind of, you know, 15, $20 million businesses today that are trying to raise growth capital to hopefully, you know, take on, you know, kind of next generation, uh, you know, marketing and automation. And um, so there's a lot of activity happening there. You know, the, the that space has been, um, it's been a challenging one, to be completely honest, from a venture perspective in that there have been a lot of competitors in that space. And unfortunately, sometimes, you know, you know, it's good for consumers in terms of it drives pricing behavior, you know, in a positive way, but has made it difficult in some respects for some companies to kind of get critical mass and get moving in the market. But I, I think you'll see more there. And I think the real thing people are trying to do now is to get away from, I think a lot of the tools you would say were kind of either reporting type tools or first level analytics tools based on data that you kind of at least had some idea what the queries were that you were trying to think about. Um, you know, what we're trying to see people do, and we'll see if it works, is, you know, try to deploy more artificial intelligence type techniques to see if the software itself can kind of, you know, posit trends that might not be discernible to the human eye in terms of, you know, how kind of marketing data, you know, potentially marries with sales information and other sources of data in the company. So kind of, I would call it, you know, it's probably an overused term, but kind of the idea of, you know, intelligent software inside the enterprise is at least where people are trying to move a lot of these marketing, uh, you know, software tools towards. We'll see if they get there, but at least I would say that's kind of the, the major area of investment that we're seeing right now. And, and touching on that, on the artificial intelligence space, there's obviously been a few, more than a few people, particularly concerned about what this could mean for ultimately um, employment. You know, will, will yep. we see a lot of roles disappear? What's kind of your perspective in terms of the type of disruption? Is it is it going to complement? Is it going to disrupt? Are we going to evolve? What what's it going to look like as AI kind of really penetrates every different part of what we do? Yeah. So if you look historically, at least over major technological changes over the last you know kind of you know several hundred years in many cases, uh, it, this is not a this is not a new thing in the sense that there's always been kind of uh, you know kind of a change in the nature of jobs that often happens with automation and. Um, and so far, at least, you know, kind of from a net perspective, you know, economic growth has always been better off as a result of technological advancement and job and employment prospects have always been better off. Uh, but that's been with the introduction in most cases of new jobs, uh, you know, that, that we just couldn't anticipate, quite frankly, as part of this. I think the thing that's probably most challenging right now and understandably is unsettling to a lot of people is just the, the pace of, t of change is happening at a much faster rate than historically it happened over, you know, many of these things like the industrial revolutions, you know, happened over, you know, almost generational changes. They were kind of 30 to 50 year changes. And so people had a long time to think about kind of uh, retraining. And, and in many cases, people's current job wasn't in jeopardy, but it was more, you know, kind of what would their children do next generation. Um, what's happening now is obviously you've got people being displaced kind of mid-career or the risk of being displaced mid-career. Uh, and I think that's just happening in a faster time zone. And, and unfortunately, uh, I, I can't speak for what's happening uh, in Europe more broadly, but I would tell you in the U.S., uh, you know, there's not a whole lot of kind of retraining and government activities, you know, geared towards helping people transition into what those new roles will be. So my, my, my view is, look, I'm an optimist generally, which is I, I believe that, you know, economic welfare will be better for most people and that job growth will be there. There will be new jobs we don't know about. Um, I think, though, that the transition, you know, will be difficult for many. I mean, you know, a great example here in the United States uh, is, uh, you know, truck driving. So driving trucks, you know, interstate commerce for, for trucks. 
uh, you know, my understanding is it's one of, if not kind of the largest employer in almost every state in the United States. And you can imagine, obviously, with things like autonomous driving and autonomous trucking, that kind of the demand for that job is going to meaningfully change probably over a, you know, a five-year period, if not certainly over a 10-year period. And so for people for whom that's their primary source of income, you know, the idea that, you know, the government would be available to help retrain and, and, and help them learn other things, I think is going to be a critical component of kind of certainly U.S. policy going forward. I think, um, yeah, I think touching on that point, uh, it's similar to what you're saying you see in the US, I see here. I don't necessarily see the, the, the level of support being offered that could be. Um, and if we sort of dig a little bit deeper on why that is, you know, that there's been a lot said around technology companies being, uh, we can call it particularly efficient with uh, tax bills, or we could go as far as saying avoidance. Um, what, what's kind of your perspective on that side in terms of, Yes, we definitely should be doing more to to help transition people in terms of roles. But is is the root if if, we, if you know if we mark it as a problem, is the root problem here that more needs to be done from the government, or does it go deeper? Is actually that the cash and funding isn't there, or hasn't been taken from taxes directly from the tech companies creating this disruption? Yeah, it's a fair it's a fair question, right? Which is, look, you know, kind of right. Is there is there a free market mechanism here by which kind of you know the the technology companies that obviously are engendering this change, you know, ought they be part of the solution? Um, I, I think I think it's probably both is the short answer, which is I do think, um, uh, and and you know, you may have seen this the other day actually as a, as a recent example, Amazon at least here in the United States. I don't know if they're doing this globally, uh, but they've announced that they are providing. Uh, retraining services for something like 70,000 of their factory workers over the next several years. And it's, you know, it's optional, they're not required to do it. But the, the theory is that the nature of those jobs in the factory will change. And therefore, if people want to stay at Amazon, there will be other skills that they will need to learn. And so I think you will see some kind of solutions for responsible companies like, you know, Amazon's doing where they recognize whether it's a social benefit or quite frankly, whether it's just their own self-interest that for them to actually be able to grow at the pace they want to grow, the availability of jobs is going to be constrained by their requirements that they actually train people. So I think you will see companies doing that. I think at the same time though, look, I think there is a role for government here. Um, and um, uh, in the sense that, you know, kind of as we think about just, even if you go back to early education, like, you know, kind of elementary education here in the U.S., uh, the idea that, you know, kind of we need to really think about what are the skills that we need to be training people on for the next, you know, 30, 50, 70 years. I think there's got to be almost a wholesale rethink of that. Um, and, you know, look, uh, you know, we also need to figure out kind of uh, in the U.S. here in particular, whether, uh, you know, kind of there's been, you know, the, the general rule has been, you know, everybody should go to a traditional four-year liberal arts type school and get a well-rounded education. I think there's a lot more discussion, particularly happening at the government now, as to like, you know, ought there, ought there to be more skills-based educational opportunities as opposed to kind of, you know, non-skills-based opportunities that would, would also tie into some of these changes. So I, I think it's going to have to be a combination of the two. Thank you. Um, I always like to throw back to all of our authors. What books would you recommend? What do you read? So whether it be business, marketing, technology, uh, our readers love to read. So what would you recommend for, for everybody else? Yeah, I'm a. Uh, I don't know if it's boring or not, but I, I am. A, I'm a nonfiction reader exclusively, so I love reading kind of almost anything in that genre. My, my favorites are. I love reading biographies, and then I also try to read kind of. I guess historical nonfiction maybe is the best way to describe it. So, um, uh, this is a very uh, admittedly U.S. centric view of a biography, but to me, uh, I'm very interested in kind of uh, uh, presidential history, and so. Um, 
the, there's a whole series of books on the uh, you know the the LBJ um, uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson in the U.S. here. Uh, one of them called Masters of the Senate, which I think is a very interesting understanding of kind of how U.S. politics works. Um, I just read a really interesting book, which actually is, a, I, I believe it's an Oxford author. Um, it's not a new book, but it's called Devil Take the Hindmost. Um, and it's uh, basically a story about, it's, a, it's a, not a story, it's a nonfiction book about kind of financial bubbles and financial excess over time and kind of commonalities from everything going back to, of course, you know, tulip mania all the way through uh, kind of, uh, you know, the dot-com bubble uh, and other things. Uh, I find those types of things interesting. And then, you know, uh, there's the, the other most interesting book I've read of late is a book called, um, I think it's called Range is the name of the book. I think it's David Epstein is the uh, author. Um, it's a, a book um, about kind of, it's kind of in defense of generalists. In other words, you know, that we, we, we tend to, from an educational and a work perspective, be very focused on specializing skill sets. And uh, he makes the argument that actually, if you look at successful people over time, it tends to be people who have more generalist-based education who, you know, can kind of solve nebulous problems, who often outperform relative to people who are deep specialists. And so uh, it's an interesting take on, you know, uh, on what otherwise has been a very different view, I think, about a, how a lot of people think about educational systems. Thank you very much, Scott. Really appreciate that. For everyone that, um, that listened today, uh, we'll be back next week with our next episode. Scott, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Carlos.